Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Hey everyone! So, if you're a regular listener of this podcast and you have heard me talk about the writing journal that I've been working on, it's called There is Joy to be Found Here, a writing journal for parents and caregivers of children with special needs. This is the one that includes my own writing about the journey of being a mama to a child with special needs, and it also has tips for journaling and numerous writing prompts to help the reader work through their own experiences. And well, after almost two years in the making, it's finally published. Woo! I'm very excited. I did end up publishing through Amazon because of all the formatting issues and things like that. So you can technically buy the book off Amazon. Um, Or, even better, you can support the GoFundMe campaign that I just created to pay for publishing costs. So the book on Amazon is $39.99, and with Prime you can get it without shipping, uh, and you can get it tomorrow. However, if you would like to support me and the work that I have put into this journal, I mean, yes, uh, it does support me buying it through Amazon, but they take such a big cut. Um... But if you would like to support me and, and the work, um, and if you would like to get a signed copy and even get the book for cheaper, you just have to wait a little longer, then you can donate to the GoFundMe campaign. I will send you a signed copy uh, to anyone who donates at least $30. You will have to wait until I gather the funds to make the printing costs, but once I do pay, they print uh, fairly fast. So. You can find the link for the GoFundMe in the show notes, or you can look it up under There is Joy to be Found Here, or go to the GoFundMe site. If you do donate $30 or more and you would like a copy, please leave your name in the comments so I can track it, letting me know you would like one. But then also send me your emailing, not your emailing, (laughs) sorry, send me your mailing address through the site, or you can email walkingwithfreya at gmail.com. I just don't want you to just put your address out there in the comments because that is something that everybody can see. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited and I will, um, this is just kind of like the basic thing. Um, I will figure out bulk pricing, things like that. I will also happily be working on, uh, workshops to do to, um, get together and work on this journal in groups and things like that. But just to get us started, I need copies of the book. So anyway, this is a way that you can help out. And the sooner I reach the goal for the GoFundMe, the sooner I can get these books printed and off to you all. So you can follow me on social media, Walking with Freya on Instagram to get updates and things, or I'll post some on the campaign site. So I experience the healing power of writing almost every day of my life, and I am so happy to share with you all some of the techniques and some inspiration for how you can use it as a way in your life to 
you know, kind of work through all the, the, the many experiences and emotions that we have on this journey. And, uh, so yes. So thank you for any donations and support and share it with your friends. Uh, that's a huge way to support this is by sharing the GoFundMe link with your friends or on your social media and, uh, let people know about it. And the same for the podcast, share, um, share the podcast with a friend, subscribe, leave a review, you know, the drill. So, uh, for now, let's get to the episode. I had the pleasure of interviewing Eleanor Griffith. She is a genetics counselor and the founder of Great Genetics, and she also has a podcast called The Patient Stories Podcast, and she asked me to be on that one, and uh, that's not out yet, but I will share a link with that when it is. And so in this interview, we talked about the kind of work that she does, the differences between a geneticist and a genetics counselor, and we discussed the reasons people see a genetics counselor and what they can get get out of it. And I found this actually to be a really interesting conversation. And we kind of get into a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of the sociology maybe of genetics counseling and who, who gets it and, and why and what they get out of it. And, um, anyway, I just, I really enjoyed it and I hope that you all do too. So if you'd like to find out more about her, you can go to graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. And definitely check out the Patient Stories podcast. You can find links in the show notes. But for now, um, here's the interview. And uh, yeah, I look forward to talking with you all again soon and seeing how this writing journal goes. All right. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Eleanor, for being here. Um, And you are a genetics counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics. I'm wondering if you want to go ahead and start maybe just by telling us what it is that you do as a genetics counselor. Sure. Um, thanks so much for having me. So genetic counselors, we are healthcare professionals. We are not physicians, but we often work alongside physicians. Uh, our training consists of a two-year master's degree, a master's of science. Sometimes the name of the degree is human genetics, medical genetics, sometimes it's genetic counseling, but there's a common accrediting body. Uh, We sit for a national certification exam, and once someone has passed that exam, they're known as a certified genetic counselor. So sometimes you'll see the abbreviation CGC after someone's name that notes that they not only have that degree, but they also pass that certifying exam. Um, And genetic counselors are licensed in about half of U.S. states at this point. So it's it's an ongoing effort with the idea that as we become licensed, it'll be easier to be recognized by payers, um, easier to get reimbursed for our services, um, to increase access to genetic counselors um, for patients. Um, is that, and I, I feel like genetic counselors often it's something that people haven't heard of until or unless they've been referred to a genetic counselor. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so uh, the common areas we work in, the two biggest areas are probably prenatal and cancer genetics. So if someone is over 35, um, 
at the time of delivery, expected to be over 35 at the time that they deliver, they might be referred to genetic counseling. Um, if there's screening tests that are done during pregnancy where someone gets an abnormal result or something suggesting an increased risk, that's a reason to be re referred to genetic counseling. Um, within oncology, a cancer setting, if someone's diagnosed with cancer at a really young age, rule of thumb is kind of under, under 50 or has a really striking family history, they'll often be referred to genetic counseling. Um, and also for people who are unaffected, but just are aware that they have a family history of cancer might be referred to genetic counseling also. Um, and in increasingly, sometimes doctors do more of this testing on their own and people will see a genetic counselor on the back end. And there are people who, who self-refer also. So there are a lot of guidelines around when a physician should be referring to a genetic counselor. But I think in practice, that's often really tough. Um, it's tough for doctors to remember to do everything they have to do when they have like seven to 10 minutes with a patient. <laughs> right. Um, and, and hard to get that, that family history. Uh, like most of us going into a doctor's office, if we're asked about family history, we're not exactly rattling it off in, in great detail with all of the relevant ages. And so for a physician to actually get that and then to know what to do with it and to think about referring on, um, I think there's a lot of patients who, who get left out there where in principle they should be referred, but in practice, they, they maybe have not been referred to genetic counseling. Uh-huh. So, um, <clears throat> well, I have a child with a genetic disorder. So I, you know, we saw a geneticist pretty early on in the beginning and maybe I'm, I'm wrong about this, but I feel like it's so that is maybe the difference, like you are more working with, well, maybe you can explain the difference between like a genetics counselor and a geneticist. Yeah, totally. So, and sometimes I think people use the term geneticist to mean genetic counselor, okay. which adds to the confusion a little bit, but a geneticist, like who you saw, for instance, that would have been uh, an MD, so someone who's gone to medical school, done, done their residency, often that's in pediatrics, um, but not always, it could be in any area. And then on top of that, they've done a two-year fellowship in genetics. So that's who we think of as a geneticist. Um, and genetic counselors also work in pediatric settings and usually working alongside a geneticist. So the geneticist who's the doctor is actually going to be doing the physical exam, as genetic counselors, we don't do physical exams, we don't provide medical advice, we don't treat patients. So there is, there is a big difference. Um, prenatal and cancer have been two big areas for genetic counselors traditionally, just partly I think because those are areas where we can work very independently because there's not usually a physical exam involved. Um, but you know, often we're working with those providers who are referring patients, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. So and then and then your job is what to take these the results of these genetics tests and get the information in their background and kind of talk people through possible scenarios or or yeah, so we look at we look at a, an individual's personal and family medical history, um, look at whether or not genetic testing might be helpful or appropriate for that individual. Um, if we're seeing them before testing is done, which is ideal, uh, then it's it's partly a question of looking at what what are the options, um, how might it be helpful, and is that something that the patient um, or the family is interested in, um, and walking them through what the implications would be of different test results so you don't end up in a situation where 
you're confused about the results and thinking, well, I thought I was going to learn more. I thought I was going to learn something different. I kind of wish I hadn't had this done, <laughs> something right. like that. Um, but sometimes we do also work with patients just reviewing test results on the back end, which can work very well also. Um, so, you know, in a pediatric setting, that could be going over the results of testing um, that was, you know, like in your case, like Prader-Willi syndrome and talking with a patient about like, well, what does that diagnosis mean? Um, what are the range of possibilities? Because for most genetic diagnoses, it's not something where, well, now that you have this, X is going to happen. There's still a lot of uncertainty. So kind of providing both the factual information, but then being there for the family to talk them through what they're feeling, what their expectations and hopes are. And in a pediatric setting, often it can involve making sure that those patients and families are connected to appropriate specialists also. Um, so genetics might be your starting point for a diagnosis, but if you have a child who has um, a cardiac issue, maybe they need to follow with a pediatric cardiologist. If there's a seizure disorder, they need to see a neurologist. So then the, the genetic counselor and the geneticist might be kind of the, the point people for making sure that you're connected to all those different specialists who, who need to be involved. Yeah. Did you have to do any kind of um, studies in psychology or anything like that? Because I imagine... Um, I guess maybe this is a two-part question, but I imagine you must have couples that come in hoping to have children, wanting to have children, and but they have, you know, a family history of, of this or that, and... Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. That definitely comes up. Um, I say sometimes, like, our our the training, the master's is really a mashup of medical genetics and counseling. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I think the name of the profession can be a little misleading where because it says it's we're called genetic counselors people think that it's not really medically based that it's maybe not necessary um that it's not as fact-based but at the same time the counseling aspect is so important and more so for some for some patients and for others so our training does include um you know counseling related skills psychology and most genetic counselors um, going into grad school have some undergrad background in psychology also. That's not always the case, um, but that's a common profile uh, would be like a bio major and a psych minor. Um, that was not me, <laughs> but that's probably like 80% of people going into genetic counseling programs have that kind of profile going in. Mm -hmm. Well, that would make sense because if you're, I mean, so is there a protocol for if, if a couple comes to you and I mean, like I said, I don't really understand how genetics works, but um, I mean, as far as like how, you know, if, if a couple comes to you, I mean, can you, can you look at kind of their history and their, and their, their testing and say, wow, there's a really high chance that um, your child is going to be born with, you know, this disorder or with, you know, these challenges and uh, yeah, some, sometimes, and I think sometimes patients are surprised both at um, all that we can tell them and all that we can't tell them. <laughs> There's uh -huh. kind of sometimes like a mismatch between what people are thinking are their higher, higher, highest risks and what are actually their highest risks. So I think often when people, if, if, especially if someone's self-referring to genetic counseling or coming in really nervous, 
Um, often it's going to be related to something in their family or someone that was really close to them. So it's really emotional. Uh Um, and you know, it may or may not be something that actually translates into a high risk for them, but regardless of what that actual probability is, you know, if you've, if you've watched someone who lived with a condition, um, that you thought was really devastating, that that's going to be on your mind regardless. So, you know, a starting point usually in genetic counseling is figuring out where is someone coming from, like what are their concerns, um, and then talking through, well, what are your actual risks and what are the options? Mm-hmm. Do, is there ever, what, um, let's see, how do I want to word this one? <laughs> Well, do you ever have, like, do you, do you mostly have patients coming in that have a history or do you have like people that want to have kids, but they're just so terrified at the whole concept of having children that, that they want to start, uh, you know, they want to cover all their bases, even if there's no family history or anything, or is it mostly people that are, that, you know, are aware that maybe something's happening? So I think it, yeah, I think good question. I think it really depends where you practice. So with, with Gray Genetics, um, which is an online uh, telehealth genetic counseling company, so patients can book appointments directly. Um, and we're still a small company. We haven't been around for that long. We don't do really much advertising. So, um, you know, we don't get a lot of patients, but we definitely have those patients who, you know, they're planning a pregnancy and, you know, maybe they're really concerned about something or maybe they just are the kind of person who likes to research and be really prepared and have all their ducks in a row. (laughs) And they're, you know, they're aware uh, that there's different genetic testing options out there and they just want to make sure that they're as informed as possible before they start um, pregnancy planning or as they're starting to think about planning a family. Um, Within a hospital setting, it's more often that someone going to be referred related to like a specific indication like a known family history of a certain condition that they've reported to a physician or um, on carrier testing, like generally like women um, in the U.S. are all screened for, for instance, cystic fibrosis. So if someone comes back as a carrier for cystic fibrosis, um, the recommendation would be to test their partner um, to see if the pregnancy might be at risk for cystic fibrosis. So in some hospital settings, someone's going to be referred just when the woman comes back as a carrier. In other hospital settings, maybe the physician is going to do the carrier testing for the partner. Um, but I, I think people's concerns do it. It really does depend. Like my first job out of school, I was working at a public hospital in Newark. Um, so I was working with a lot of low-income patients and immigrants um, and the kind of concerns that they had and the expectations that they had were very different from like later I worked at Cornell and it was in cancer counseling, but you know, people who there's like a hierarchy of needs, Uh (laughs) you know, so when you have, when you have all of your basic needs met, um, and especially if you're, if you're educated and high income, then sometimes the counseling issues are more around people who, you know, like kind of want a perfect child, which I mean, Uh that, if that exists, like, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it does. Um, but you know, so it, so it really, like, I think it depends a lot on on the setting. Uh Uh-huh. So that's really interesting. So what, how would you say it was different working with families of low income and immigrants? What, what was, what were their concerns 
more. Yeah, so so they're, I mean, often very surprised, especially with an immigrant community where they're already navigating healthcare system that's right. quite different from what they're used to. So, you know, most people don't really know what genetic counseling is, but I think for, for immigrant families sometimes, um, and for non-immigrants too, and even in, you know, a different, a different setting, but sometimes there's defensiveness in a prenatal setting of being referred to uh -huh. genetic counseling, thinking that someone's going to tell you, um, you know, tests that you have to have done or that you're, you know, like you have to have an abortion if, if the child has Down syndrome, something like that. In most cases, I found that patients were pleasantly surprised, <laughs> to say the least, to learn that it was really just the hospital's responsibility to make sure that they knew all of their options and that the decisions were completely up to them. Um, and I think especially for the immigrant population, that was um, that was a, a bit of a surprise that they were pretty happy, <laughs> happy yeah. about just to hear that like, no, these, these decisions are completely up to you, but the onus is on the hospital to make sure that, that they give you all the information. Um, and in those settings, in that setting, um, you know, sometimes people are coming later to prenatal care. Um, so sometimes there aren't as many options that can be offered. Some of those are just, um, you know, at the time I remember before I would get to work, um, like I was told by other people who were there, like who started work much earlier than I did, people would be lining up outside the door, um, you know, to try to get in for the orientation that they need to start prenatal care there. And there just weren't quite enough spots, <laughs> you know, so no matter how conscientious you were as a patient, sometimes you weren't able to start prenatal care as early as you wanted to. Um, and, you know, some, some patients too, like reasons for patients missing appointments. Um, you know, we, we send out letters if they miss an appointment, but sometimes if I see a patient on my schedule that was especially, it's like, oh, that's, that's a pretty high risk for whatever reason they were referred. And I pick up the phone and call them. I remember one woman was like, oh yes, today, today I didn't have money for the bus, but now I have it. Mm -hmm. I'll come tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. You know, so there's, there's that kind of issues where there's more day-to-day -day things that keep, right. keep people from, from keeping those appointments or getting the information that they need. Right. Well, and I imagine uh, there's probably a much uh, higher level of distrust, you know, especially um, in the immigrant population, especially, you know, nowadays, I mean, with the the climate of our country, you know, you know, um, asking them to come in and, and do these tests and, and promising that, you know, it's not going to lead to anything else. I don't know. I yeah. just feel like that would be a, a, an issue to deal with as well. Yeah, and I mean, I was I was there like 2011 to 2013, so it was definitely mm -hmm. a different political climate. But that was that was also something that sometimes would come up where I was like, you know, it's like two different hands. Like the system <laughs> does not talk to the INS. Like one system doesn't talk to the other. That's just like the way it works. But it, it's it's weird. Um, but yeah, they're already under you know different life stressors. Regardless, more in different life stressors. Um, at the same time, I feel like. Um, there, because more often the patients would be used to having things in life not go that well, mm. <laughs> they're less surprised by um, the potential of bad news. And mm. I think more grateful for things when things went well, you know, I think, and I mean, a lot of people say, you know, don't care a boy or girl, this or that. I just like a healthy child, but I've, I felt it more. I feel like I heard it more in that setting. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's kind of, well, I kind of took us down a little tangent. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. Well, I studied anthropology in school. And, uh, well, I think it's also important to talk about just, you know, how even, in, you know, in the same 
geographic setting pretty much like people can have such different experiences and so often they're you know a lot of it's based on on money or um but yeah that's a whole other tangent um yeah so it makes the profession interesting you know and it, it means um that like what you do as a genetic counselor is really different not only depending on if you work like now a lot of genetic counselors work for labs you know i'm a little bit of an outlier and working in like private practice um but in a hospital setting it, it's so different depending on you know not just like cancer prenatal but what group of patients you're working with yeah well and you're based out of new york now right are you are you in new york yeah i live i live in brooklyn but since it's a telehealth company all of our consults are done through phone or video conferencing so we can see patients um you know anywhere in the u.s or really anywhere in the world and do they have to have so this is the graygenetics.com uh yes and people can check that out do you have to have a physician recommend um can anybody just come to your website and and find a yeah. counselor? Mm -hmm. So no recommendation or referral is needed. Anyone, excuse me, anyone can book an appointment. We don't take insurance at this point. It's just one of those things where we're a small enough company and reimbursement has gotten better for genetic counseling, but all of the hassles of dealing with insurance and figuring things out, <laughs> that might be something we offer in the future, but at this point we are self-pay. Um, and we can always provide a receipt for people um, if they want to submit to insurance for possible reimbursement, but um, anyone can come to the website and book an appointment. Okay, yeah, and that's G-R-E-Y. Uh, genetics. And if you would mind, I, I read the blurb about how you came to the name of that. Would you mind uh, telling the audience? Oh, yeah. You're making me kind of go back to my about page. Oh, no, but I, not, not really. I, I remember, but I know it's, I know it's, that's where you must have read the blurb. So, I mean, part of it, I, I don't think I put this part on my about page, but you know, you, you have to come up with a name for a company. <laughs> yes. It has to be something that that isn't already taken. Ideally, it's something where you can get a related URL, um, something that's easy to pronounce. Um, I think I was like, you know, in doing brief reading, um, you know, this is like an online company, online service. It was like, okay, it's good to have one word that's pretty common and easily Googleable and recognizable related to your service, and then another word that's a little more random. So it's partly that. Um, and then just that genetics in general, I feel like, in, in media headlines, often an article covering genetics will do a pretty good job with the issue, but the headline will usually um, suggest like the gene for X and kind of this idea of genetics is deterministic when it's really much more complicated. Um, so that's part of where gray came from, just that genetics isn't black and white. There's a lot of gray. Um, and then even the spelling of the word gray, I was going to spell it um, G-R-A-Y because that's just like the typical American spelling. And I ended up going with G-R-E-Y because it just, I think it looked a little bit better because of the two E's in genetics that follow. <laughs> I would just um, that. <laughs> yeah, that was why, I mean, it, it was going to be gray because I'm American and that's how we spell gray. And then like looking at it visually, I was like, oh, it looks, it looks better with three E's. Um, but it's also, it's kind of like a nerdy genetic reference. So in genetics, you can have a change in a base pair that doesn't result in a different amino acid. Um, so, and so that, that would be an example of like a spelling of a word where you have gray or gray and like, regardless of how you spell it, it's the exact same meaning. Um, it doesn't change the meaning of a sentence. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So. I I don't 
uh, understand the genetics of my daughter's disorder much. Um, and is that a detriment to my daughter? How important is it for me to understand the genetics uh, part? That's, that's interesting. And I, when you, cause you did see a geneticist when she was initially diagnosed, right? Yeah. Yes. And have you, um, do you have follow-up appointments with them? Um, she retired. We had a few follow-up appointments, um, but then she retired. Um, but, you know, I know with PWS, there are three different ways that you can get it. And so mm -hmm. I, I remember reading in the beginning that there, um, I think that depending on how, you know, how she came about to having it uh, can slightly affect some of the symptoms. Um, and but she has the most common kind, the deletion of part of her 15th chromosome. Um, but that's kind of, but, but that's all I know. And I don't know if I should understand it more, like if, if I can leave that to the doctors and the geneticists or, or if, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, to me, what you just said lets me think that you do understand it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I guess, I mean, you can always go into, there's always like, different depths of understanding and then there's just like limitations of what we know but I think I think it's really helpful like first of all that you know that it's genetic um, and I mean you're obviously someone who um, you know has a lot of formal education and you're a writer and you're a poet so you're you're coming at this from like a different level of knowledge um, but I, I think it's it's one reason a, having a genetic diagnosis can be helpful for some people um, is just understanding, you know, this is not something, you know, it's not because you like drink the wrong kind of milk in pregnancy or because like you didn't sleep on your, you should have been sleeping on your left side the whole time. You know, there's all these <laughs> things that people worry about. Right. Um, and that's definitely like a part of the genetic counseling piece is like what people bring into it. And like sometimes people are holding on to explanations that just like from a scientific perspective, at least do not make sense. Um, you know, so knowing that this is, you know, it is genetic, it's related to a deletion on one of her two copies of chromosome number 15. It's not related to anything that you did or that you didn't do. You know, I think like that's really like the basics that I think for a parent with a child with a genetic condition is just like really helpful for them to know that. Mm -hmm. um, and then with deletions, you know, whether it's related to PWS or another condition, most of the time that's a random event. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really helpful to know for people. I know you have two other daughters, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's helpful to know too. You know, I've occasionally would meet with a, with a patient. I remember again, like when I was working at the public hospital and she'd had a, a child, it wasn't, um, it wasn't, it was probably nothing where a genetic test would show, would show um, like a change that explained what had happened, but she had some birth defect and now I'm forgetting exactly what it was. Um, like an, I think it was an abdominal wall defect, but you know, she never really got an explanation for it and she was pregnant a second time and she actually had an abortion with that second pregnancy. And it, it would have been like, it was a pregnancy that she would have wanted, but she was so afraid of oh. the same thing happening again, um, which no one could tell her that it will never happen again. But the particular birth defect that she had the first time, um, you know, would have been like kind of like one of those lightning strikes sort of things, like very, like quite a, like less than 1% chance of it happening again. Um, so I think 
recurrence risk. Like that's what's really helpful for people to know. Is this likely to happen again? You know, for some people, it's something like a deletion. It's quite unlikely. Um, for some people, it's, well, you know, this is something related to something being inherited from each parent, and there's a 25% with each pregnancy. Um, so the, the, the chance of something happening again, like that really varies. And I think that's something that's really helpful for, for parents to know is they're planning families um, to know what their testing options are if they want to do that, but also just in thinking of like, do they want to have more children? And then how do they feel as they're going through that pregnancy, especially when, you know, maybe they're feeling more concerned than they really need to if they got more factual information about their risks. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Education is important. <laughs> but, and it's, and it's, I mean, I did, I do remember that, that feeling learning that it was a genetic disorder and this, this finally, this sense of relief of like, okay, it, it wasn't me. I didn't, you know, it wasn't that room that I painted before I found out I was pregnant. It wasn't that, you know, I drank the milk cause I got pregnant. Um, right when uh, Fukushima happened and we live on the West coast mm. and uh -huh. so all, you know, they, said all that radiation was coming over and I was drinking milk because I get really sick and that's all I could drink. And, you know, so I just went through all of these things of, you know, I, you know, I did this. And um, so it was, there was a relief in finding out that, you know, it was, it's a, well, first off, it's on the chromosome she got from her dad. So, <laughs> <laughs> so and he says, he, he used to say, oh yeah, it was that a uh, Grateful Dead show back in the eighties, but <laughs> <laughs> but it was just a, uh, like you said, a lightning strike, just a, a random event. And, and uh, it was kind of nice to know that um, I hadn't caused it because there is that, that fear and that feeling. And then when we got pregnant with the third one, um, they offered to do genetic testing. But, you know, they said it just wasn't really, I mean, the chance of, of having another child with PWS was like less than 1%. So, I mean, yeah. we... We wouldn't have done anything different anyway, so we we you know chose not to. But and, even if, like even if you wouldn't have done anything different anyway, probably nicer to go through your pregnancy knowing less than one percent instead of I don't know fifty percent, twenty five percent. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, just kind of like wondering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it's but, totally you know I think it's just normal human psychology to look for explanations, um, and when we're not given one, usually we come up with one, mm -hmm. um, you know. And if if those are like adaptive and helpful to people, like they don't have to be scientific, like that can be fine. But sometimes, sometimes they're not. You know, sometimes it's it's harmful or people are blaming themselves um, when, and that's that's I think especially when a genetic explanation can really really help people like cope and adapt. Yeah, it really did for us. It was, uh, yeah, it was a, a life changer in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, definitely in our perception of, of how we were, you know, of what was happening and why. And um, yeah. And, and then, I mean, kind of back to your question of if you should know more about the genetics of, of your daughter's diagnosis. I do think that's, I think it's changing a little bit. Um, Prader-Willi is, you know, not common, but you're in a group of, it's a, it's a well-recognized condition. There's a lot of support out there um, for parents with kids who have more rare conditions. I think sometimes um, knowing a little bit more and pursuing some advocacy on your own can be a little helpful. We're just kind of like, we're right at a point where some gene therapies are starting to become like realistic and real and available instead of this kind of pie in the sky 
um, theoretical. Um, but at the same time, it just takes time for these things. So I think, you know, it's, it's every, everyone kind of deals with things a little bit differently, but, um, you know, I think for most people, it's not helpful if you're like constantly scouring the internet for the latest research paper, because the idea that that recent research paper on PWS is going to translate into anything like meaningfully different right. <laughs> and then in the near future is, is really, really, really small. So I think it's, it depends on people's personality, but it's kind of that balance. Like, yes, it's helpful to make sure that you're up to date and that there's nothing like new, but I think you can drive yourself crazy by trying to follow everything so closely because it takes so long for anything in research to kind of trickle down to making a difference for patients at a clinical level. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to um, ask you about your podcast for a minute, let people know about your podcast. It's called Patient Stories. And um, do you want to tell us a bit about what you do with that? Yeah. So Patient Stories, I started not too long after I started Gray Genetics. And it was partly kind of thinking like, what can I do in terms of like marketing, content marketing that I would actually enjoy? <laughs> um, and it actually hasn't been that helpful in terms of content marketing. I don't think we've had a single patient book an appointment <laughs> related to the patient stories podcast. Um, but I've, I've really enjoyed doing it. So it's always, I interview sometimes a genetic counselor, usually a patient who has a certain genetic condition or sometimes a parent, a caregiver of someone who has a genetic condition. Um, and there's a tiny bit of genetics, like I'll ask like, well, what is this condition or what's your understanding of it to kind of frame the interview, but I really try to keep the focus psychosocial. Um, it's really about focusing on a patient's experience. Um, it's not intended to be genetics education, medical education, medical advice. Um, and I have some patients at this point who just hear about the podcast and reach out to me and are excited to share their story. And it's nice to be able to offer a place for people to do that. Um, and then there's some people who I'll reach out to too. So, you know, for instance, we've done quite a few interviews related to hereditary cancer genetics, especially BRCA. Um, but and we've done some related to pediatric genetics conditions, but like we hadn't done anything related to Down syndrome, which is a huge, um, you know, a huge condition in, in genetics. It comes up like talking about Down syndrome happens a lot in genetic counseling. And then it's one of the more common prenatal diagnoses when it comes to genetics. Um, so we have some of those scheduled for January. So in some, in some cases, like I'm actually reaching out to people to look, to look to have like more representation from different conditions um, or more diverse audience too, or more diverse guests too. So, um, a lot of white women <laughs> yeah. email, email in, which is great. Um, but sometimes like I kind of have to go out of my way to, to look for men who might want to be interviewed or someone who's not white, who wants to share their story, who's, who's had a different experience. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, 50 episodes in and uh, I've had no dads. <laughs> for one thing <laughs> yeah yeah so, you know there's um which I think you know maybe it says a lot to you know who feels willing and empowered to tell their story or yeah who, or who feels comfortable with sharing it and um yeah you know we have a lot of work to do 
<laughs> in our society. <laughs> and it's sometimes I think it's, it's who it would occur to. And that's why I do, I do reach out to some people or we have, um, we have an internship program that I'm always tweaking, but so often we'll have like a patient stories intern and they'll kind of be tasked with like looking for people to reach out to. But, you know, some people's just, you know, maybe a man is like less likely to think like I could talk about my child's diagnosis, but you know, if they're asked, they might say, Oh, sure. <laughs> right. Right. Well, so have you, has there been something, you know, doing this podcast, has there been something that just, uh, that you, that you were surprised to learn or that, uh, you know, changed your kind of your perception of, of the patient experience or your approach to your job? I mean, has it been kind of like you, you know, what you expected or has, or has there been a story or, or somebody who kind of opened yeah, up? I, I don't think nothing's really surprised me in a way that's, changed how I approach when I'm talking to patients in a genetic counseling scenario, but um, a few things have come up that have surprised me. So I, I, first of all, I really wanted it not to be an advertorial for genetic counseling. <laughs> so uh -huh. I really, I, I like hearing what people's experiences with genetic counseling have been, um, and they're not always positive. Often they are, and sometimes people say, that they didn't have a good experience and they didn't feel that the person was like sympathetic or gave them good or complete information. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised by that, I guess, because I've just heard like anecdotally enough from, from people who are non-GC seeing genetic counselors. I don't think it happens often. And, and often, there, I mean, there's always an issue of what actually happens and what someone remembers, um, you know, when mm. you're hearing information that you're not really weren't expecting to hear <laughs> you know sometimes like some of those negative feelings get projected onto the genetic counselor um but i guess i've been encouraged not by the fact that there are enough of his stories but that um it's it's been something that patients have been able to share and there's a lot of genetic counselors who listen to the podcast so i think that's actually been helpful for genetic counselors to hear um you know because otherwise you're not going to have a patient that comes back to you and says you know, here's, here's my evaluation. <laughs> this is what you should do differently. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and it's, it might be like less instructive to hear that from like a one-off scenario where you're both deeply personally involved and kind of conflicted. But I think for genetic counselors in general to hear these instances of people not having good experiences um, is helpful. I had one genetic counselor specifically tell me that she feels like she's gotten so much out of the podcast because we just, we see patients, you know, for our hour or for a couple one hour appointments, but we don't see everything else that they go through. Mm -hmm. And it's just really helpful to, to get that broader long-term perspective about everything that they're going through. Um, I remember one of my first interviews, maybe even you know, my first interview was with a patient who I actually saw when I was working at Cornell in GI cancer counseling, who has Lynch syndrome, and she'd written she'd she written about it publicly, so I knew that she was public with her diagnosis, and I asked her to do the interview. But it was funny because, like, what I remember is, you know, for me is like me as a genetic counselor getting her test results. There was a known mutation in the family, so I knew it was a fifty percent chance that she would have Lynch syndrome, which is a predatory cancer syndrome. It doesn't mean that you will get cancer, but it's very high risk for a lot of different cancers. You need a lot of surveillance um, and a 50% chance that she would not have that in the average risk. Um, and I probably identified more with her because she was like also a young 
female kind of like working in the arts in New York. Um, and her result came back positive. And so, you know, I remember getting those results and I remember giving them to her. Um, and for me, that's such a strong memory. But for her, you know, she, she does remember getting the results, but for her, it's like, living with that afterward, <laughs> right. you know, after, after she left the appointment, everything else. Um, yeah. So I guess those things have, have shifted my perspective a little bit, maybe. Um, I think the best thing that I've seen come out of the podcast, which was unexpected is someone who I interviewed who had a child with a rare condition who'd reached out to me, um, and wanted to share her story. And then after the podcast, she, there were several, I think two other families who had children with the same condition who found her and reached out to her. And they were families who wanted to be in touch with other people who had the same condition, but they weren't on social media and they didn't want to be on social media. Um, I think so many patients now find each other on social media. So that was really gratifying just that, yeah. you know, it actually created connections between these um, families who were, had a child with the same rare condition. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Oh, that's good. That's what, that's the uh, beauty of uh, podcasting and um, you know, good, good for them. Good for you for doing it. And that's awesome. They could, they could find each other and make a community. And yeah, I think a few, I, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but a few months ago I saw um, a news article or something in my inbox or whatever, but that Google had, changed its search so that now it also searched for titles of podcasts. Um, and I think that that has probably helped a little bit too, or will help, you know, like now if you, um, you know, it wasn't pulling up podcasts before, but now it will. Yeah. So. Oh, good. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about uh, gray genetics or what it is that you do or your podcast or um, anything that you feel like we missed? Mm -hmm. Maybe, I guess I'll say, because I think most, most of your audience is going to be parents of, of children with special needs. Yes, yeah. or not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, that's the majority, I would say. Yeah, I would say maybe the other thing is just like there's so many, um, I, I don't know if like people in, you know, in that audience look at this a little differently, but a, a question I get a lot in general, <laughs> it's just that, um, what about 23andMe? <laughs> what about ancestry testing? There's just like this whole world where genetics is suddenly like cool or like you could get it as a gift. <laughs> so there's, there's just this big commercialization of genetic testing. Um, and you can get some good information from that, but you know, there's like privacy and security risks with all of it. It's usually not a high quality genetic test. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, people are frustrated with the medical system. And so it's, it's such a hassle to figure out your insurance or to get a doctor's appointment or maybe to have a doctor who you feel a connection with or who is listening to you. So it, it seems so easy to order a test online to get more information, but usually the tests that you can get in that way aren't providing you with the greatest information. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're interested in genetic testing related to a health risk, it really is helpful to talk to a genetic counselor first, even if like with gray genetics, you know, people are paying out of pocket for genetic counseling, but 
you know, sometimes you end up spending a lot of money for tests that aren't helpful. <laughs> uh -huh. So a, a genetic counselor can actually help with, um, you know, talking you through whether and if testing could be helpful and then can also help with um, often identifying a test that would be covered by your insurance because genetic testing, you know, the coverage by insurance, um, you know, it's not all across the board great, but generally it's pretty good with most insurances. Um, and often genetic counselors can be helpful in, in getting you testing through a company where you're not going to have an out-of-pocket or it's going to be lower than it would otherwise be um, if, if you just go through your, your doctor, for instance, and they send maybe where they would normally send for any testing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for clarifying that. I actually, I had thought about asking about the 23andMe, um, not so much about, you know, testing for anything other than just, you know, like where you come from or whatever. Um, it was my husband and I did it, but we thought about doing it for our children uh, just to see what kind of mix they have. And I did have the thought of like, would they, I mean, would they find, would they notice Freya's de deletion and would they say something? I don't know. I thought that was interesting, but um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they actually would with a deletion. They do, um, they'll do some controls where they'll see, I don't know if they do a karyotype or they're just doing like a broad test where they, they're doing some sort of, um, as part of quality control to see if someone's like 46XX female or 46XY male. Cause I've, you know, there's some patients who've come, come back and like, that's a surprise. <laughs> like that's how they find out. There's just these incidental findings. Like people start out thinking like, oh, this is a fun test. And they're like, I've, always identified as a male and why am I coming back 46XX? So, you know, and some of those things can, you know, end up being like helpful or interesting, but it's, it's usually like when people are starting out doing these tests, it's like, you know, they're just looking for like ancestry and it's kind of fun. Right. Um, and then it can kind of open up all of these other issues that people may or may not be happy to encounter. Right. So that's where you come in. So, um, yeah, if you're looking for some real genetic testing and, uh, some answers, see a genetics counselor don't yeah don't order me. <laughs> yeah well and there I think 23 and me the biggest the biggest thing um that I would like it's the most news coverage maybe the most misunderstanding is they do testing of three common variants in the BRCA gene um which the three variants are common in individuals of Ashkenazi ancestry so if you have one of these variants it's a high lifetime risk of breast cancer ovarian cancer and some other cancers but breast and ovarian are the biggest um, but I've, I've heard people comment like, oh, I'm so glad my, you know, my BRCA results through 23andMe were negative. I don't have a BRCA gene. Right. <laughs> and it's like, well, we all have a BRCA genes, like two copies, and they're only testing for three changes out of over a thousand possible. Oh, changes. wow. Okay. So there's, and they, they 23andMe actually, I think they do a really good job with their copy and all of the fine print. And they've had focus groups where they've said like, yes, everyone understood the limitations of this testing. And I interviewed one patient and she was like, yeah, I can see how that would work po perfectly in a focus group setting, you know, but she's looking at, you know, when you're looking at results, like you're getting back from the gym and you're checking your email quick and you're, you know, the way right. we're interacting with things online, um, you know, you're not, in, you're not reading things the same, the same way. So I think there's, there's potential for, for false reassurance too. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, Eleanor, thank you so much. I really enjoyed having you on and, and talking with you. And 
um, yeah, I definitely learned some things and uh, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. And so, yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on.